So I do believe that one of the great obstacles for us and challenges for us during Holy Week is that we, we usually live in our head. We usually are trying to figure out how do I get everything done that I need to get done? How do I fix the things that are going on in my life? How do I take care of this and this? And we live there. But in Holy Week, we are called to descend and to live with, from our heart. It's not to say that the head is bad or that thinking is bad. But during this season, we are called to engage and observe Jesus from the seat of our being, which is from our heart. And so tonight, I'm going to lead us to kind of re reflection on two aspects of Jesus's final meal with his disciples, the same meal that we will share tonight. And the first reflection is on our relational brokenness. It's on our relational brokenness. So Jesus tells his disciples that he has been very eager to share this meal with them before he suffers. And this is a very relational intimate thing to do, especially when you know that your death is near. As we all know, a person's last moments have a way of drawing out the thing that is most important to them, doesn't it? What do you want to do with your final moments? And this meal, the relationships around it, are clearly the most important thing to Jesus. And we shouldn't take this lightly. Can you believe this? That the thing that Jesus most wants to do at the end of his life is to sit around a table with you and share a meal with you. Now, whether Jesus is an introvert or extrovert, well, we don't know about that. But we should know this. Jesus is deeply relational. He wants to be with us. He wants to be close to us. Now, this meal itself has a rich history, going back to God's earlier work of deliverance for his people when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. I wonder if you've ever stopped to wonder, have you, why was it so important to God that they stop and eat a meal before they leave Egypt? Think, think about this. They're leaving Egypt forever. They needed to leave in a hurry. They had lots of packing to do. God told them specifically, get your flocks and your herds and bring them along with you. And they needed to make sure that they were out of Egypt before the Egyptians could get to them because their God had just killed all the firstborns of the Egyptian people. When I try to picture the frenzy of all of this and try to imagine the anxiety that the Israelites must have been under in trying to perform this feat of getting out of town quickly, it's hard to think that you would have an appetite. But God, in a way, he's like a concerned mother who's telling them, you have to eat before you leave, insisting on it. But not so much because he's concerned they will be hungry on the trip. More importantly, God wanted them to have a meal with him. In his presence. A meal that would be for the purpose of remembering that he is the one who is rescuing them. This is a God who insists 
on such meals. And the reason is because he is a very relational God. Now, in contrast to Jesus' eagerness to share the meal with his disciples and God's desire to draw near to his people at Passover, in contrast to both of those things, at the heart of Jesus' final meal with his disciples is an act of relational betrayal by one person and infighting among the rest. So surrounding, let's put it this way, surrounding God's attempt at furthering relationships with his people are human attempts to derail such relationship and such intimacy. It's sad to admit it, but the scene sounds a lot like family gatherings that some of us could share about. You know, a local pastor, I won't say what church, told me just earlier today that he cannot describe his church gatherings as family gatherings because the families within his church have such ingrained grudges against one another that they do not gather as families. This is an area for personal reflection. God is deeply relational, but we are relationally broken. You know, one of the most persistent questions of human existence, besides questions about God, has been a question about us, about human beings. What is human nature? In other words, what are we dealing with when we deal with each other? So if I'm dealing with Fred, am I dealing with an angel? Am I dealing with a devil or something in between? This is the, this, this is the way people have talked about who we are. Who are we on the inside? And the question especially bears on raising children. Are, are children born with good instincts and we parents corrupt them or do they corrupt us? These questions have been around as long as humans have been around. Socrates, this ancient teacher, philosopher, he was, of course, familiar with human weakness. And he said that if only humans have the right knowledge, we will do right. He was optimistic, wasn't he? You could characterize a lot of our history up until now as a broad attempt to discover a human perfecting knowledge. The whole notion of the time period that we live in today, e even us here in East Rockingham, is that we have become enlightened people. We've been delivered out of a dark age when whole populations were wiped out by disease, when others were enslaved. And we now have a democracy, unlimited access to all kinds of information, advanced medical care, and a better grasp of human rights than anyone before us. It, these are all things for which we should be grateful. But there's a possibility here for self-deception. Because with all of this progress is the impression that human nature itself has improved. But has it? Every so often our optimism is crushed. So politicians, priests, pastors, all alike are exposed as corrupt and corrupting of others. Why? Why do people do the awful things they do? Why did Judas do what he did? 
And why did the disciples bicker over which one of them was the best and the brightest? Now, not to give short shrift to the complicated factors involved in these things, but these questions are all relatively safe until we begin to ask them of ourselves. This is the crucial turn we all must take over and over again to turn and ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? I can be going along in life feeling pretty good about myself. But then I'm surprised when someone challenges me or my patience is tested. I feel threatened, sometimes angry, and depending on the situation, either the walls go up to self-protect or I vent the anger. Before I fully grasped it, I disengaged from a person or I've said something hurtful. This is the cycle. Knowledge, as helpful as it can be, doesn't always transform my heart. My brokenness actually grows out of my relationships. But not only my relationships with others, my relationship with myself and my relationship with God. So Judas experiences the most fundamental relational brokenness a human being can experience. Satan takes hold of him and Judas becomes the accuser incarnate. The challenger of God. Judas abides with Jesus. He shares a meal with him as we will all share the meal with him in a few moments. But Judas trades Jesus in. Jesus, who was his Lord, becomes instead an object that he can trade in for something that is more valuable to him. Can you believe that Jesus can become like this to us? An object that we can trade when there's something that we prefer more? We are, all of us, relationally broken. Vulnerable to our own self-deception, to the betrayal of God, and to the betrayal of each other. Now the second reflection is this. Jesus pursues and restores relationships. How do we process the fact that Jesus knows Judas's heart? He knows Judas is going to betray him, but Jesus doesn't run from him. He doesn't avoid him. He doesn't hide from him. Instead, he does the exact opposite. He welcomes Jesus. He welcomes Judas, excuse me, at his table. It's as if even if Jesus was backed into a corner and you tried to make him hate you, all he could do is love you. Jesus shares the meal with Judas. Surely one thing we must begin to believe is that Jesus will never run from a relationship with us. He will not. We cannot frighten him away. He's always there. He's always waiting for us to turn toward him. And he's always waiting to receive us when we're willing to turn toward him. 
It's the same with the disciples. They're bickering about which one of them is the greatest. You know, in this day and age, it, once uh, a leader of a group of people died, they would decide who's going to take that person's place and be the leader among us now. So Jesus isn't even out of the way yet, and they're bickering over which one is going to get to take his place. But what does Jesus do? He's still there, teaching them to the very end, helping them get things straight. And listen, no surprise here, getting things straight means learning to do relationships together. Learning to love each other. Serve each other as He has served them. We must see in a fresh way that being converted to faith in Jesus does not mean simply acquiring a new set of beliefs. It means becoming a new person <laughs> with a new ringtone and everything. set of beliefs. It means becoming a new person. A person who is in relationship with God and others through Jesus. So that the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to the hearts of our brothers and sisters. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to a spouse. The closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to a child. We begin to see others for who they are in relationship to God rather than simply who they are in relationship to us. Because who they are in relationship to God is prior to who they are in relationship to us. And because without a relationship to God and without filtering all our ambitions and all that we are through God, as good as our ambitions may be, they become undermined by our own self-deception. You see, when we don't filter these things through God, we serve ourselves. When we don't filter our relationships to others through Christ, we begin to use others and trade them in for things that we would like rather than loving them and serving them. We perpetuate brokenness rather than producing healing. But in Christ, we become a presence of love incarnate. We become free like Jesus to love even when we're backed into a corner. We are relationally broken. This is the seat of our brokenness. But Christ, who is the highest and sweetest presence in all the world and beyond it has set a table for us around which we can gather with him to be healed and restored. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.